0: What's going on, everybody. This is the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host Pat, and on today's episode, we sat down with Bedros Kulian. He's the founder of Fit Body Bootcamp, one of the nation's fastest-growing franchises, as well as a best-selling author, speaker, consultant, and investor in startups. We spoke with Bedros about his early days and immigrating to the U.S. at six years old. What influenced his path to entrepreneurship? The valuable lessons he learned from his mentors growing up. The worst and best deal he ever made. What inspired the idea for Fit Body Bootcamp, why he decided to franchise the business, and how they got to over 800 locations worldwide in just 10 years. Bedros also shares how he's been able to build a world-class team, the few books that changed his life and made him a better leader, what his insanely regimented daily schedule looks like, and how people can ultimately be better following the COVID crisis and everything that's going on in the world right now. We started off the conversation by learning about Bedros's background and upbringing.
1: Yeah, so I actually grew up in two places, our mother country, Armenia. Um, and I was six years old when my father decided that we're going to escape Armenia. He was a member of the Communist Party. So uh, June of 1980, we escaped. We went into Italy and uh, went to the American consul, and said, hey, uh, we're political refugees. We are denouncing communism. We love to go to the United States. And so 10 days later, uh, all the paperwork was lined up um, where we could enter the United States as long as my dad was willing to help the U.S. government by sharing whatever information he could about communism, the, the socialist government, etc. Especially during that time, of was the Cold War, so you can imagine how needed that information was from the United States. So then we come to the United States and, um, you know, we're living in Section 8 housing, food stamps, Medicare, or actually it was Medi-Cal, um, and you're kind of, my dad kept saying in Armenian that we would run out of month before we, or we would run out of money before we run out of month. And that stuck with me for a long time. And I remember he had three or four jobs. Like he was working at a pizzeria, delivering newspapers in the middle of the night and then pumping gas. And my brother and sister each had multiple jobs. Um, being the smallest one of the family, the youngest one, my brother was 14 years older than me, sister 16 years older. I saw them working hard. Trying to make ends meet, I saw them, and I heard them crying at night. My brother and sister wanting to go back to Armenia, because
0: um, they obviously remembered. They like, remembered. They, they had a
1: their experience the was whole, far different than mine. Was there, they right? had friends. My brother left his girlfriend that he was sure that he was going to marry. You know, and he was wow. nineteen at the time, right? So, yeah. you know, I came at a time where I got I had a chance to assimilate into the American culture, American life. Whereas they didn't, so it was much harder on them. And and I guess in looking back now, the hardest part for me was I felt like I wanna do something, right? but you're six years old. What can you do? And then I felt to like- To help. Yeah. yeah. So I felt like a burden, right? Or a stand. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And so believe it or not, actually, I found I found uh, this dumpster and it had posters in it, like ACDC yeah, and whatever, yeah. and I started selling posters. I pulled the posters out, started selling them for like a quarter or 50 cents, whatever. And that was At like, At well, school or? No, uh, uh, so after about three or four years, my dad put together enough money to buy a tiny little tailor shop in Anaheim. Um, and he was a tailor back in Armenia mm-hmm. in Anaheim. And in front of his shop, I would sell the posters. And I think the only reason that people bought it, like they were his customers coming out of the store right. and they're like, oh man, you know, you're know, Joseph's son. Here you go, right? That, I don't think they even cared for the posters, yeah. but I felt like I was contributing. They
2: threw it back in the dumpsters and they then yeah. resold it again, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. It was like. Yeah, I made a lot of money, money
1: than- doing that. But um, it, it was it was tough coming up. You know, I can joke about it now, but you know when you're, uh, we had to eat out of uh, dumpsters. Not like garbage cans, but like dumpsters that are behind grocery stores. Right. They throw away food that's expired, that maybe has gone bad but isn't fully rotten you guys being from the Armenian culture, you probably know, like, just because bread has a little mold on it, a good Armenian mom is going to pick the mold off and you're still eating the bread. And so, you know, I would fish out food from the dumpster and my mom, whether it was expired, but hadn't gone bad. So we would eat it. And so it was a tough life. And then having people yell at you, go back to your own effing country. You don't even speak English. um, You know, you're taking all of our jobs. Like I would hear that. And I was like, man, I wanna grow up and do something and make a lot of money so my family doesn't have to suffer. I really think that was like the big catalyst to me wanting to be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. was I felt so helpless as a child because I couldn't contribute financially mm-hmm. that it just, I kept brainwashing myself. I gotta grow up and do something.
0: Why did you think entrepreneurship would have, was the way to go to do that though? Like did you have an idea of maybe like a career path or something where you wanted to go down or was it always like I gotta take matters into my own hands and be you know in charge of my own yeah, destiny? Good,
1: good question. I, uh, I knew that I wanted to make a lot of money. Maybe I didn't think it was entrepreneurship. I think the one thing that influenced my path to entrepreneurship was my dad opening up his little tailor shop mm-hmm. and seeing that a, a man who really didn't have more than a seventh grade Armenian education, um, barely spoke the language, was able to make money and eventually bought a house for himself and bought a few rental properties you know, in a 25 year period. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I saw that, all right, this guy has no really marketable skills in the American world, but he was able to open up a business and work. So that was my first exposure to entrepreneurism. I saw that when he would tailor or hem someone's pants or suit, he would say, hey, you want a pair of socks? You want to buy a pair of socks, a tie? He would always try and go for the upsell. And these things, uh, my friend Ed Milet always says, he goes, a lot of the best lessons in life, they're not taught, they're caught. Mm. And I would... Just you know be at my dad's shop after school as a little kid, seven, eight years old, ten years old, and I see him trying to upsell people right. and so those little messages get ingrained in your head and so I went to become a smog technician. I realized i don't want to work in an automotive garage. I like cars, so I thought that's the path I should go and uh, thankfully, I had an older cousin who worked at a at an automotive garage, and he took me a few times. I'm like, "This is not for me. Like, I, I know I don't want this. Mm. I like cars, but I don't want to get my hands dirty in cars. Right. I want to be in the driver's seat." You know, <laughs> like I very quickly realized what I want. And so for me, it was the only path was entrepreneurship. So I decided to become a personal trainer and work for myself. And then from there, I just started to gain mentors. Um, you know, my first personal training client, this older gentleman named Jim Franco. I was in my twenties at this point. And uh, I was working at LA Fitness in La Habra, California. Sorry, before we get into yeah. this part, how did you even get into fitness in the first place? Like, was it something? Well, that's that a has really a good kid? question. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, growing up with Armenian food, you tend to
0: gain <laughs> some a weight, bit. overeat.
1: Yeah. yeah like sure. the way, we, and, and to explain to your audience, if they're not, there's no Armenians in there. Um, like our culture, the way the parents show love is to feed you, right? Yeah. It's mm. just that's how it is.
2: I'm not complaining.
1: No. <laughs> No, no, the food is delicious. Yeah. Like, it's like spectacular food. It's just when you realize like, okay, I think I wanna work out and put on muscle like that guy, well, that guy's lean, I'm fat and strong. Like what gives? And you quickly realize like the food that my mom's making is right. not gonna help me and get there. And it's not
0: the easiest conversation to have coming home and saying, mom, I wanna eat X and not no. what you're making. You cannot say that. No, dude, you're, you're offending like you're people. Yeah, yeah you're, you're offending
1: done. people, exactly. So in, in that way, um, by the time I'm in high school, I'm like 25, 35 pounds overweight. Um, already I'm the foreigner. Right. I had to work hard to get rid of my accent because one of the things my dad told me is like, let get rid of the accent. Like, assimilate, blend in as much as you can. Like, he knew immediately that we're not gonna be in Glendale or North Hollywood, we're gonna be in Anaheim where there's less Armenians. He wanted us, his kids, to assimilate as much as we can to the culture. Easier for me than right. my older brother and sister, right? and so hey get rid of your accent my sister did a good job who's actually older than my brother my brother did a horrible job still has a very heavy accent um and i think i did a decent job and um, so it's like all right get rid of the accent try and assimilate to do that senior year is coming up I, you know my friends now are going to tell me they're going to go to the prom who do you want to ask to the prom? i'm like nakaya the smoking hot chick right and i realized like I would have a better chance if I was in better shape. Like I knew the kind of guys she was into, like the jocks, and I was not an athletic jock. But uh, I asked one of the guys in my science class, he was on the football team. I said, hey, Dave, what does it take to lose fat and build muscle? Uh, This was like 11th grade. And he goes, "Um, well, dude, I'll take you into the school gym. So we go into the school gym and I was so intimidated. I didn't want to be in there. Um, But thankfully, I'm with a guy who is respected in that gym, he's a strong dude. And he started helping me work out. And basically the summer before senior year, I started eating healthier. I started to work out like twice a day. And you know, when you're young, you lose fat very quickly. So I came back senior year in better shape, more confident, um, more self-esteem. And I never did ask Nakaya to the prom, so I never went to the prom. But she was literally the catalyst to me wanting to get in shape. As right. as with as with most men, like girls, like my, my son is fourteen years old. When he was thirteen, I'm like, hey son, we've got our own private gym now. Let's go. Come with me. Come work out. Nah, dad, I'm not interested. And like four months later, he's like, dad, can we go to the gym? I'm like, the fuck? Well, what happened to you? Like, what do you mean? Like you you just kept saying no. What's her name? And I was like, oh well, you know, let me show you who she is, right? <laughs> yeah. A girl will lead a guy to do many, many things. And so and so anyway, so that's how I got into fitness. And I realized I loved that transformation so much. Not so much the physical. The physical's fine. Um, and then the health is great. The mental aspect, the confidence, the self-esteem, the self-awareness, being able to shake hands and make eye contact instead of just looking at everybody's feet. Right. Um, that completely changed my perspective and I wanted to just help more people get fit in that way. Mm. And
2: that's what led to it. So is that something that you realized right after high school? Because you said this journey really started in high school or Mm -hmm. towards the end of high school. Did you know immediately, okay, this is what I want to be doing for at least the beginning part of my career? And if so, what were the next steps you took to really accelerate that and get into it?
1: Yeah, very good question. So I just knew that if, literally, if someone would just pay for my basic needs, just make sure I have the basic amount of food, basic amount of water, basic amount of shelter. Like, I'll live in a little box. And I just wanted to train people. I just wanted to train people in the gym and have them experience that transformation that I did. I was there at four in the morning. I left at 11 p.m. I slept in the kids club of LA Fitness. Yeah. You know, in the middle of the day, I slept like from like one to about 1 I slept there and then I ate my lunch and then I worked out and then my evening clients came, right? Like, that's how excited I was. And I was. You don't even want to know how cheap I was charging people. Like, if you couldn't afford personal training, I made sure you could because right. I knew you wanted the results, I'd find a way. And, and was it because you were, like, other trainers might have been in it for the wrong reasons, like to make the most money or whatever probably. for you, like
0: the fulfillment was just yeah. making people
1: Yeah, like, like I said, the money was not, I, well, here's what, I read it back in a muscle and fitness magazine one time, there was like a little fractional ad that said, become a certified personal trainer, make $100 an hour. Oh, shit. Yeah. Well, wait a minute! I like going to the gym now. I want to help people. Hundred dollars an hour. I did the math. If I help six to eight people a day, man, that's like six to eight hundred bucks a day. I'm I'm rich, right? And to me, that was a lot of money yeah. back then, and probably still a lot of money today. Six to eight hundred bucks a day. Not realizing that you have to learn to sell, and you have to have some kind of some kind of authority. You don't they don't just pay you a hundred bucks an hour. You start at like ten bucks an hour, mm-hmm. right? And so when I got into that big box gym, I very quickly realized I love doing this, and unless I get really good at selling myself and building my authority, I'm not going to make a lot of money. And that's where right. my, some of my personal training clients who are entrepreneurs really took a liking to me and started to mentor me. The first guy, his name is Jim Franco. He's, we're still dear friends. Uh, he's like a second dad to me, like rich dad, poor dad. Mm-hmm. He's 82 years old. Wow. Uh, in fact, I put him on my podcast a few months ago. And uh, yeah, he mentored me. He said, hey, you know, why are you working for LA Fitness? They're making majority of money. What if you opened up your own gym? And I'm like, I can't afford that. And you're like,
2: what? 21 at
1: the time? 22, 23. Yeah. You talk
2: a lot about mentors and you know having this circle of mentors who really helped you build your, you know, really helped you develop professionally. Frankly, yeah. um, who were some of these people and how did you find them? You know, a lot of people now talk about you know we lack mentors or I wish we had a mentor for this. You know, talk to us about your journey and maybe how some of these folks that are listening can go pursue
1: mentors or go pursue relationships. That's a really good question. Actually, I believe we have more access to mentors today than ever before. Think about, you know, I'm 45 years old. When I was 25 years old, there was no social media, no Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. And so my mentors were Jim Franco, who was a personal training client, because he just showed up into my life to to get even more fit in his 60s. And... um, he recommended a Brian Tracy book, so that was my mentor, that book. But I never, I didn't know how to find Brian Tracy. Uh, then Zig Ziglar. Then he recommended a Dan Kennedy book, uh, Tom Hopkins. And so I would, books and audio cassettes. Those were the mentors back then. You, you were not this close. You couldn't send a message to Tony Robbins like you can today, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when, so when people say that there's a lack of mentors today, I say there's a lack of action on their part. There's there's a, yeah. an abundance of mentors
0: because you can connect with somebody and want them to be your mentor, but if you're not well, like able to put in the work and actually they, they can't help you. Yeah. They they don't know how to help you.
1: Right? One you got to put in the work, and two you got to pay for the work. And so when I didn't have money, Jim Franco was working out three days a week with me.
0: Yeah.
1: Once I realized he's coaching me during our workouts, I said, Jim, could I give you? a fourth and a fifth workout on my time in exchange for you, just asking you questions 20, 30 minutes a week? And he said, sure. Unbeknownst to me, that's how I was paying. I was paying through sweat equity, right? right. And so uh, these days when I, when I see people who reach out, and like, hey, I want, I want you to mentor me, and they think somehow that I'm gonna make all this time, I'm gonna put my wife and kids and 700 franchise locations aside, my, my team of 40 some odd people aside, my paying clients, my hundreds of paying clients aside to mentor someone for free, that is, that is massively offensive. I do have people that I mentor for free. Mm-hmm. These are young men, young women who I've, I want to pay forward to. I know they don't have money. I know their parents. I knew when, when they were small. I know this one young man who is, uh, his dad is in prison. Mom did a great job raising him. He decided to become an entrepreneur. He's in his early 20s. I mentor him. But to come and ask someone, when people say, you know, I reached out to Tony Robbins, he didn't answer, right. what do you think he's going to do? Right, right? right. like the man's out there making money, uh, driven. Right. And when you pay, you pay attention. When you don't pay, you don't value. Right. And so going back to what you said, you got to do the work. The best way to do the work is to have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And also I think beyond that with mentorship, it's I don't like that word per se because for me it just is very transactional. I like just having friends in different spaces that I can learn from, whether it's in my industry or beyond because I can get feedback from them I could get insight from them that others don't know mm-hmm. and I think naturally those people become the authors of the book right they become the people that teach you ahead of it being known to other people and with access to social media and access to so many people anybody can be your mentor right it's like who you choose to actually listen to and who you actually choose to take action because of I think that's on you mm-hmm. so you know I really appreciate that feedback I think it's great so after you have this kind of meeting with Jim Franco and you you guys are working together and he says, you know, you need to open your own, p- own place. What do you do? I mean, Is that immediately like,
1: yeah. let's do it? Well, immediately the, the young mind goes to objections. Well, I don't know how to run a business. I don't have the money. I went to the I don't knows, right? And he's like, hey, stop. You can get the money. He goes, you've got clients who pay you, well, pay the gym $600 a month. I was getting paid about $13 an hour. He goes, people are paying $600 a month to work with you. These people have money. He goes, I've got money. I was like, oh shit, you're right. Every day you drive up with a different car. You know, he goes, so why don't you make me an offer? I was like, I don't even know where to begin. I was like, Jim, can you loan me money? Like, that was my offer. He goes, yeah, I'll loan you $50,000 for 8% interest. And after you pay me back, I'm still your 50% business partner. I'm like, deal. It was the worst deal on the planet.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was about to say.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need to tell me. <laughs> yeah. I, I now know, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But, but in hindsight, it was, it was the best deal ever because he made not only his money back with interest, but now he was a business partner with me on a facility where he had Vested interest, in but it was but it was enough for you to just begin, right? And yes. I think that's. The I was going to say you might have core. not even gotten started if it wasn't for taking him. He told I didn't know how to get a business license. Right. He told me to go put lead boxes out in the community. This was before social media, obviously, right? And I put lead box. I didn't know what a lead box was. Yeah, and he told me how to go talk to businesses and let them know how I'm going to help them if they help me get leads. Like it was like like literally drinking from a fire hydrant of knowledge, and he helped me with one location. I used the money that I made to open up four more on my own. So, had he not given me that jump start? And so, in my way, that's how I paid him. I paid him with interest and I paid him with giving him 50% of the money uh, for him effectively doing nothing once he coached me along. So, this was Fit Body Bootcamp? No, this was a brand called Premier Results. Okay. Yeah. So, before Fit Body Bootcamp in the early 2000s, uh, like actually, it was uh, 2002, and two, three, right around there. Uh, Premier Results was my brand. Mm. And it was one-on-one personal training. Fitbody Bootcamp came about, so a few years later I sold Premier Results. I had a really good offer. And by the way, the reason this brand who came through and bought Fitbody or uh, Premier mm. Results from me, um, didn't buy it because the name was so special. They bought it because I had recurring revenue. Mm. That I had clients on a 12-month contract and I had predictable revenue. And years earlier, Jim Franco had told me, make sure your business has legs. Right. I go, what is legs? He goes, make sure you put every client on a contract where you, they pay monthly. I go, Jim, in the personal training world, we only sell five and 10 sessions at a time, and then when you run out of sessions, we sell you more sessions. He goes, that's not how you're gonna do it. You're gonna have people on a membership. And that is That what... advice was probably worth half the business because- Easily. Uh, there's so many people that get
0: started and people don't realize how much work and money and time goes into getting a customer yeah and then once you get them in, for whatever reason, even if you give them all give them everything you can give them, right mm-hmm. and they don't decide to come back, you lost a bunch of money right there. Mm-hmm. So the business model, like you said, like that's, that was great advice from Jim for sure. I'll tell
1: you exactly <laughs> how much ab- that advice was worth. Eight hundred and ninety three thousand dollars mm. is what I sold my business for, mm-hmm. and only because I had my clients on committed agreements, meaning I could leave, but they still had to stay and pay the new company mm-hmm. right. Right. And so now I learned all about recurring continuity income. I started coaching and consulting personal trainers after that, teaching them how to open up gyms. Everything I'd learned from Jim Franco, I can now teach other gym owners and studio owners. And then, of course, the economy crashes in 2008. Mm-hmm. And I see that one on one personal training is not a viable model. People can't afford it anymore. So within the next few years, uh, we started Fit Body Bootcamp, group personal training. We brought that outdoor boot camp model indoors so that it could be weatherproof in any city, any state, uh, any country. And uh, by 2012, we had franchised it, excuse me, and um, man, it was just this hockey stick of growth, Uh, yeah.
2: Before we get into the whole growth, I mean, where did the idea start? Or where did you first think about this and said, this needs to happen? Was it during the time you were running the premier results gym, or was it right after you sold?
1: After I sold Premier Results for the next like four years, I did coaching and consulting. So That's I was all. a consultant, yeah, to the fitness industry, to personal trainers. And when the economy crashed, many of my personal training clients reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, I'm losing clients. They can't afford one-on-one personal training. Is there a new model? I was like, well, go do the outdoor boot camp. It's like, well, I live in Minnesota, it's freezing cold. I can't do outdoor boot camp. I'm like, shit. All right, what do we do? Like, what if we bring the outdoor boot camp indoors? And everybody in the industry is like, no, we can't do that, no one does boot camp, it's in the name, personal training, it has to be personal, no one's gonna do group training. But I'm like, wait a minute, there's coaches, professional NFL coaches working with the highest level athletes in a group environment, and they get them results, why can't we get Mrs. Jones results who's inactive and not eating right? It just it didn't compute for me. Not to mention business-wise as a trainer,
0: you're just compounding the amount of money you're making in an hour That's it. by having a bunch of people in, your, in the room versus That's just it. one person. You're making <laughs> a little bit of
1: money from a lot of people and the mm-hmm. whole idea is you make the product more affordable and convenient, especially in a time of economic crisis, mm-hmm. like we're heading into right now, actually. Right. And it still has personalization as part of it. Big time. Yeah, Big time. And so I was like, well, I'm going to prove the concept. So I opened up the first one in Costa Mesa. Um, that worked. We opened up another one and then that worked. I said, alright, let's, you know, license and then franchise the concept, and off we go. But it was one of those things where the idea came from another mentor that I hired years ago, Dan Kennedy. And Dan Kennedy had said, the marketer or entrepreneur, your only job is to solve problems in exchange for money. And when the economy changes and we buying behavior changes, the demographic changes, find what the new problem is and see how you can solve it and charge for it. And so economy changed, personal training changed. I needed to solve the problem, and if I could solve the problem, I could charge money. And I started charging personal trainers, you know, buy-in fees and franchise fees, and that's kind of how the brand grew.
2: Was it like a quick adoption from consumers or did it take a while to get these people to understand what's going on?
1: It was a pretty quick adoption. People realized only because the market was right for it. Right. Right? Kind of you, like the $5 footlong right, was right, most popular when the economy crashed, right. right? right. When the economy's thriving, we're looking for the highest quality sandwiches.
2: Do you think that the success early on had something to do with you and your personal brand or were you not even in that game of personal branding yet? It was just because the company was successful, the product was good.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, I actually started working on my personal brand, building my personal brand the last three and a half years, four years. Previous to that, it was just, I knew I had a good product, I knew I had a lot of personal trainers who trusted me, and they were willing to pivot their business model. So, all those clients that I had, those gym owners who were doing one-on-one, I said, look, trust me, do one-on-many mm-hmm. instead of one-on-one, mm-hmm. and we're gonna be successful, because I just opened up two locations, and they're thriving. And so, it grew quickly, because I already had the market for it.
0: Right. So, um, you start this thing, it's doing really well. Why did you decide to franchise versus just kind
1: of self-funding and owning the entire business? Good question because I knew that I could grow it faster through franchising. Um, you look at Starbucks, it's been around since 1974. Right. It's, it's huge now, mm. but when you look at its history, it grew so slowly. And so I knew I wanted this brand to take off quickly. The only way I could do that is to get more money investors in, right? To each own an individual location or 10 locations, 12 right. locations. And so I knew we could grow it, like force multiply the growth through mm. franchising.
0: And I'm not too familiar with like other fitness concepts that are franchised. I don't know if
1: like the regular gyms that we hear of, like the big box ones, I don't think they're franchised. No, they? big box ones, most of them are not uh, other than Planet Fitnesses. Okay. Um, and then you have F45, Orange Theory mm-hmm. is franchise, Which are a little bit like,
0: newer, right?
1: Yeah, just so like Fit Body back Bootcamp. then,
0: it sounds like you were, it wasn't like a common thing to do. So w- did, was it like a challenge getting mm-hmm. franchisers to, sorry, franchisees to come in?
1: Yeah once I got my initial group of franchisees, because my, all my coaching clients who wanted to convert, then the real work began. Yeah. Then we had to really figure out like, how do you sell a franchise? Like, There's a right. whole Federal Trade commission, overseas right. franchises, and you have to make sure that your, every state requires a different level of what's known as an FDD franchise disclosure document. and so the, the learning curve was huge, right. but I was already in it, committed, and once I lock onto something, I'm all in. like I'm going to figure it out. so
2: On a personal level, were you, or did you believe that you were prepared to lead a company like this that was set to grow? No. Or (laughs) is it something that you were just like, fuck? Yes, that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And and Joan over there could tell you, she was my first uh, awesome uh, team member that we brought on board. And I say team member because I always look at it as I had employees, and employees clock in a little late, clock out a little early, do the bare minimum to maintain employment. Team members understand the vision and the mission, and play as a unified front to win. That's what a team does, right? And so today I have team members and not employees. But um, Joan was like the first, I hated my employees. I had about nine of them at the time. Joan came on board, and then they hated her because she was proactive. And they were just like, we don't wanna be proactive. We just wanna putz along, right? And so I didn't know how to lead people. I was a good marketer. I was a good coach, a business coach. I went from a fitness coach to a business coach, but I never had employees with many different personalities and attitudes and lifestyles. And yeah. I didn't know how to lead, man. And so, and certainly in the Armenian culture, my dad never was like, hey son, feel free to talk what's on your mind. You know, it's like, right. shut up.
2: <laughs> Surpre- yeah, you're always suppressed. Yeah.
1: yeah, and so when you're always suppressed, you become passive aggressive. Right. And I was that leader, a passive aggressive leader who was indecisive and was emotionally reckless. Uh, That is not great leadership. Sounds like a bad culture to be in. It is a bad culture to be in. And and
2: I speak from experience. I think Pat speaks from experience as well. I mean, we've been in that situation. And I do feel for those leaders because I wonder, did they just come from a bad environment and not want to learn? Or are they just naturally pieces of shit? But I think that the answer is that people don't
1: take the time to learn. Well, no, no one told us. Like, yeah. like I, I went to college for thirty-eight days, so yeah. I, I can't. I can't qualify. You don't learn that in college, though. Jim Franco didn't teach me leadership. Yeah. Dan Kennedy didn't. Dan Kennedy taught me how to write sales copy. Frank Kern taught me how to sell. Jim Franco taught me how to structure a business. Mm-hmm. No one taught me how to lead people. Even though they all led people, it's almost an afterthought. Yeah. It's a learned skill that comes later. There's no blueprint. There was no blueprint. Like in the most recent times, you know, you've got like Jocko Willink talking about leadership. You've got, um, God, the guy that wrote 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, John.
2: Not Maxwell, right?
1: John Maxwell. Thank you. Yeah. But people will write him off because he's Christian, he's church-based, whatever. But the man talks leadership. Like, leadership is about, one, giving hope, two, being very clear on your vision, and three, being decisive. Like, right. that's that's leadership. And if you can give hope, be clear on your vision, be decisive, and communicate that vision, you're going to win and you look at all businesses that fail, 87% of businesses that fail or underperform, it's a lack of communication. Communication is a, one of the four pillars of leadership. Mm-hmm. Yep. Who, who teaches us communication? Who teaches us to make fast decisions?
0: It's funny, because like, it's probably in every, like, in so many companies, like values and all that stuff, but they don't actually
1: practice it. No, it's re- it's no, a really hard no, thing no. to do. There's a, a term practice. for that. Those are called aspirational values. Right. You yeah. know, uh, Actual core values are what you live by. Right. We took our core values from 10 to three because we realized the other seven were aspirational. We right. want to be nimble and quick and blah, right. blah, blah. But we weren't. So let's get rid of that. And what are we? We drive change, we exceed expectations, and we're fiercely disciplined. That's it. That's what Fitbody's built on. That's what my team is. That like this guy's a DJ, he's also a videographer. He also does jujitsu. On weekends he's doing vi- like weddings, like he's just bananas, right? Like yeah. he, you will not find him not working. Joan clears her inbox before she leaves, spreadsheet every third. Like every team member is that kind of neurotic. Mm. And it starts at the top. I want to yeah. ask, like, I know you're really vocal about this stuff. Is how do you build a world class team? Like,
0: what's your approach to that? Because before, th- there's a lot of work that goes into getting them in the, like, you know, finding these people in the world and, and bringing them onto your team and and finding the people that are going to work well with your team. Yeah. And putting everything together. So how do you
1: how do you go about that? You build a world class team by becoming a world class human. That's that's the bottom line. I spent five years, uh, literally putting myself through physical challenges of adversity, uh, six week challenges, I'm gonna train for six weeks and run a marathon. You can look at me and tell that I'm not a runner, right? Like I can lift heavy weights, I am not a runner. But I trained for six weeks, ran a marathon. That builds some level of mental toughness that nothing can build. Uh, I I, I was afraid of heights, so I'm gonna do six weeks in rock climbing. I wasn't much of a fighter, and it's like, you know what, I'm going to hire an MMA coach, and we're going to train for six weeks, and he's going to go in the ring with me. That was just on the physical side. Then I started reading more books than I ever read about personal development, psycho-cybernetics, outwitting the devil and 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 uh, the, the, the body keeps the score about traumas that we've experienced. Like as a child, if you've been sexually abused, if you have been physically abused, if you've been mentally, emotionally abused, verbally abused, you have emotional scars. And until those scars are removed, yeah. those scars are filters on your eyes and ears, and you begin to approach people with fists up instead of fists down. Like what have you, if you're human and you're in your 30s or above, you've had some kind of trauma that you need to process through. So become a world-class human and you will start attracting world class people that you can help build up.
2: You know, and one thing I think about, and I'm I'm just being super like open here, is that you are in a position in life that you have the capability to think through these things, right? To be able to sit back and say, Okay, how do I become a world class human being and have some of the resources to actually make it happen? For people that are, you know, late teens, early twenties, whether they're in college or not. How do they start becoming world-class humans? How do they develop those skills with the limited resources? Because I know you talk a lot about being resourceful, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not something that you're taught for sure. You know, it's more so something that you that you catch that you, you know you talked about. So, how can people start becoming more resourceful? How do you teach resourcefulness, or do you not?
1: You, you absolutely. It's a learned skill. Resourcefulness, resiliency, is a learned skill, and. Just on this, do you charge for this podcast? No. No? It's free? Yeah. Oh, look at that. It's a free information. And on this actual episode, never mind the hundred and some odd episodes you've done, on this free episode, we've talked about being resourceful and resilient. We talked about getting mentors or at least following them online and mimicking their lifestyle, right? And then I've already dropped three three books, Psychocybernetics, Outwitting the Devil, The Body Keeps the Score. I said I also do these six-week challenges. I mentioned two of them, three of them. So if someone just did, read those three books, did those three challenges, they would be a better version of themselves by at least 300%. Who's gonna do it? Less than 1% of your audience. And why is that though? Because all of us want to be like the majority. A small few of the percentage want to go against the grain.
2: Is that because they don't know people that are in the minority? Or is that because
1: they don't they want to just... shake things up. You know, they don't want, do you know what an Armenian mom thinks when your whole hand and <laughs> arm is tattooed? Uh, they don't like that. I, are, I lost are, my child. <laughs> right, I lost my child. Yeah. What are people going to say at the weddings? Mm. I got an answer. We were so- I, ju- I just I don't go to the weddings. <laughs> don't roll up your sleeves. I don't go to the weddings. I, yeah. Why do I need to go to the weddings? I've got a bigger purpose in life. Right. right. I don't have time to go to weddings. Also, also, why should you care? Why should there you go? There you go. The problem is too many people care. What will people think? Who will I offend? I need everyone else's approval and validation. Once you run out of that, by literally putting yourself through adversity and suffering. Like the man that suffers discovers his highest level self, that's Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. If you don't suffer, and there's a term for that, there's a great saying that the military has, it says, uh, good times create weak men. Weak men create bad times, bad times create uh, strong men, strong men create good times, Mm -hmm. and then back to good times Mm -hmm. create weak men, Mm -hmm. cyclical. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We had such good times that we had very weak men, emotionally weak men and women. And so right now with this economic crisis, the COVID virus, the riots, the protests, everything that's happening, we are going to force, by the way, you will see a higher rate of suicide, heart attacks, and domestic violence in the next three to five years to come.
2: You're already seeing it now. And you're already seeing
1: it. Yeah. And it's going to continue. And it's going to continue because people don't know how to cope with it. And unfortunately, those who decide to not kill themselves or kill others will end up leveling up, toughening up. You all have it. We all have it. You put any man or woman in a corner and you put a knife to their throat, you know how to kill someone. I don't want to, but left to... If that's the only option, I'm dying or you're dying, you're gonna have to die, right? Every person has that ability. And so it's been so long since we had our claws and fangs out as humanity, because things have been so good, we now have bad times that are gonna create strong men and women.
2: Going back to Fit Body Bootcamp a little bit, I know you mentioned that you're up to 700 something franchises. Yeah. You started this in, what, like 10, 15 years ago?
1: 2012, we franchised. Eight years ago, we franchised. Two years before that, we were licensed. So, 2010. So,
2: 10 years right now. So, you've, I mean, grown significantly. Yeah. How did you get from 2 to 10 to 100 to 700? I mean, that's a massive amount of growth.
1: Yeah. And it wasn't a linear growth like For that. For sure, yeah. Unfortunately, when the product, we first launched a product, we had such fast growth. We literally promised a unicorn delivered a donkey. Not intentionally, but it was... We didn't have the support that we have now. Right. We didn't have the big team that we have now. Like Right now, as soon as you sign up and become a franchisee, you're talking to Wee, whose who's, only job is to find you a territory in your community, and then he hands you off to Brittany, and Brittany's job is to make sure you get the business license, you build out the location, and then you're given a cap coach. Cap coach is coaching and profitability, cap, and cap coach's job, is to make sure you hire the right staff, train them up, and know how to market properly. We have in-house marketers who drive traffic for you through different social media platforms. We didn't have any of that, so the support was lacking, and so we built to 120 locations, went down to 70 because we lost locations, figured out what we did wrong, built up to 200, then went down to like 160, 170, and then figured out what we did wrong again, and now it's linear growth, like Mm -hmm. the last five years. Kind of like a like a stock IPOing. There's like this
0: some yeah, corrections, yeah. and then eventually, yeah. sort of.
1: But even when you work out, you're working out. You're not going to consistently get strong. You're right. going to hit plateaus. You're going to mm-hmm. catch a cold and lose mm-hmm. some muscle. You're going to the COVID virus is going to shut down the gyms, and you're going to have to figure right. out something else. Mm-hmm. You're going to get injured, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to lose some muscle. But over twenty years, you will be in better shape than you were when you started. How do you see
2: Fit Body Boot Camp changing or growing as a result of this pandemic? As a result of this economic kind of downturn recession that we're experiencing is anything going to change or is this a time for fit body bootcamp to be seen all over the world or all yeah. over the country i mean Gyms are closing left and right. I went to the gym this morning. There was like 10, 15 people I there. think 24 Hour yeah. Fitness yeah. announced
1: that they're uh, filing for bankruptcy. Closing. 138 locations. 138 locations. Yep. Are you going to take over
2: here. all those locations? I mean, what's, what's the plan?
1: Well, no, because those are big <laughs> mega gyms, 30,000 square yeah. foot. We're about 3,000 square foot. We have a very different model. But when you look at what we did, we moved fast. We pivot. So on March 17th, uh, I announced to all of our franchisees, we need to lock the doors. Close the doors. We're, we're going on quarantine. And I said, in 24 hours to 48 hours, we'll have online coaching. And so we did follow-along workout videos, learned how to use Zoom properly, Facebook private groups. And now we immediately turned all their clients who were working out in a Fitbody location, instead of canceling or freezing their accounts, we started doing at-home training using Zoom and follow-along videos. That's now become part of our model. Even though we're reopening locations, we have 87% of our locations open now. It's become part of the model because there's people who decided, hey, I actually like working out at home. And there's people who said, I'm not ready to go to the gym yet. It's still a little scary. So, And there's people who decide that, you know what, there's not a Fit Body near me, but I could sign up at the Fit Body in Glendale even though I live in San Diego, right, because I can do the online coaching. So it's become an additional revenue stream for us, another way to add value for us. Um, so that's how our model has changed and evolved. And now that we know there's going to be more quarantines and lockdowns, because this wasn't just a one-time thing, yeah. now we know that we're always going to be able to pivot.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned those like just a few years ago. You started working on your personal brand and um, you know, social media and just putting yourself out there more. Um, what's I mean, like, how's that been? Obviously, it's been like great for you. But like, what's like the, what does it look like? Like, what is it? What does the day-to-day look like? What do you What do you
1: focus more on than other things? I just create content on every platform and it's myself and Ed and, you know, there's another gentleman up there, Primo, who's part of our video media team. And we're just constantly creating content that adds value. Mm -hmm. I I just look at if I can add value on all the social media platforms in my zone of genius, what you'll see sometimes, you'll see the fitness guy adding, talking about politics or religion or whatever, like, I don't understand why people stop following me. Mm -hmm. It's like, they followed you for one thing and then you zigged on them, right? Like, don't ever zig, always zag. If you zag, stay zagged. And so I know what my zone of genius is, I talk about my zone of genius, I'm very passionate about that, which is selling, marketing, entrepreneurship, freedom, mindset. Um, And now, do I talk about politics when it matters? Absolutely, but in the way that it impacts entrepreneurs. I even went on Fox News and CNN, and we talked about the fact that, you know, look, small businesses are suffering because of this crisis that we're going Mm -hmm. through. And they said they wanted to get me to talk more about politics. I was like, look, our politicians have a decision to make. What are you gonna do to save the small businesses that are the backbone of the American government or, or the American economy. I'm not gonna throw a politician under the bus as much as they want me to. I'm gonna keep being the champion of a small business. And mm-hmm. so I know what my zone of genius is. And when you do that long enough, it's like, imagine this pyramid. In the very bottom, you're a generalist. You're just a generalist. And then you become an expert. Then you become an authority. And at the very top of that pyramid, you're a celebrity. You do something long enough, good enough, you become a celebrity in your space. and. I've been fortunate enough to become a, a bit of a celebrity in my space. Mm. Uh, I can walk into a financial conference and no one knows me, right? right? But in the, I can walk into any Tony Robbins event or Ed Mylett event or whatever, any m- mindset, motivation, personal development, business event, and it's like, wow, you're that guy.
0: Yeah. You know, and that's and speaking what Speaking of this space, um, we've all seen a lot of people come into the space um, that are not obviously the big names like the Tony Robbins and the Ed Mylett and you and these, but like, we see a lot of, in any industry, like a lot of gimmicks and a lot of people pushing yeah. these narratives that are, are not like they're, they're hurting people more than they're helping people. Because mm-hmm. you're not someone who's well read or well studied or well experienced, or you're not like qualified. We
2: call them scammers. We call them scammers. All right. That's what they um,
0: are. Yeah. So how how like as a as a as a person on the other side, like what should they be looking out for? How do they how do they weed out? You know, because there's so yeah. much money floating around, they, they, they waste a bunch of money on these like. Yep. things and books or yep.
1: whatever it might be and never get anything out of it. Uh, for one, common sense. Yeah. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. That yeah. that rule still stays, number one. Number two, Ronald Reagan said it best, trust but verify. So if you're like, hey, Bader, I'm going to help you become a multi-billionaire. I'm going to help you do it faster than ever before. I'm like, Pat, I trust you. But can you verify, can you connect me with three people that you've done that with that I can talk to over the phone? Right. Odds are you're either going to do it or you're not, and if you don't, you're a scammer. If you do, then hopefully they're going to speak great about you. Mm. And so people, because unfor- look, you pay $5,000 to the right person, uh, and they bribe someone at Instagram, you get the blue check mark. And then you pay about $2,000 to the right person, you have about 300,000 followers. Yeah. Yep. And then you look at, you just structure a good bio, and now you look like a badass. Yep. right? And you toggle that switch to entrepreneur. Even though you've never been an entrepreneur, you've never been through economic crisis, hired, fired, you've never had to deal with lawsuits, whatever. And so, but man, on the surface, you got the blue check mark, 300,000 followers, and your bio looks pretty fucking awesome. And look at your posts. Oh my God, it's, you sound just like Ed Milet and, and Tony Robbins. Oh shit, you stole their shit, motherfucker. That's, so you have to look through that. And the only way you do that is you trust, but verify it. Do you think that
2: people try to look up to these folks and say, okay, how do we become this person as fast as possible? And so they start skipping all these steps that folks like yourselves took, Mm -hmm. but you didn't necessarily talk about it because you were doing it, right? Right. So what can people be doing when they're starting off, just slowly building? Like, what are some of the tangible steps people can take? You know, for example, if somebody wants to be in, I don't know, a sports agent, what can that person start doing to get to that? Go work
1: for the best sports agent you can find. and and be the best employee for them. Be the best employee for them. Like If you wanna be the best, fill in the blank, Mm -hmm. go find the best person at it, and literally you're gonna get paid for mentorship. Right, because yep. you're going to work for them, either in sales or in support or something, or you're going to be their assistant and run around. You're going to hear every conversation. You're going to see how they problem solve. You're going to see how they react in chaos and crisis. And you're like, "All right, now I can be the best right. at it." Instead of reading from a book or just assuming that you know. Because one thing to learn how to drive traffic. Hey, you know, I can put up a Facebook ad, uh, you know, and, and drive traffic. All right, so you got the customers. The customers got bad service. Now they're pissed off. They're leaving bad reviews. How do I fix that? You're my business coach. I don't know, I just taught you how to market. I'm a business coach, but I've never had to really deal with customer support issues. I don't know how to deal with that. Well, what if you were actually vulnerable and said, guys, I screwed up, I'm so sorry, I promised a unicorn, delivered a donkey, I'm gonna make this right. In the meantime, here's your money back. Mm. That's how you make it right. I've had to do that. I even told you when I did it. Because of that, I can coach my clients, and they're, wait, I need to go apologize and give money back? You sure do. That is counterintuitive, but that's how you solve through that.
2: Right.
0: Um, just to wrap things up, I know you, you know you mentioned talking about the mental aspect of fitness, and I couldn't agree more. And you know, it's something that once you start doing it more and more, and it's part of your life, and it's a lifestyle change, um, you realize how how important it is. But I'm curious, like, what's your personal daily routine? Not even not even just fitness, but in, in general, because yeah. I know you have your hands in a bunch of things, but fitness included, uh, how do you go about your days?
1: Yeah, so certain things are non-negotiable for me. Um, Wednesdays are date nights, so and we have the Wednesdays and date nights because. Typically on weekends, I'm traveling, speaking at events, Mm -hmm. right? And so realized that, hey, I can't do uh, date nights on weekends. So Wednesdays are date nights. That's a non-negotiable. Notice we started today at 1 o'clock or whatever it was, 12 o'clock. 12 12 o'clock, sorry, 1 o'clock. I've got a uh, thing upstairs. But at at 12 o'clock. And that's because in the morning, I GSD, get shit done. And so I wake up at 5.30 every single day, seven days a week, drink 30 ounces of water, then have coffee and protein shake. By about 7 a.m., I'm sitting on the couch with my laptop and my notes on my iPhone from the night before of things I need to do that are gonna make me money, and that's it. I'm not gonna do support stuff. I have a team that does that. I'm gonna either write posts, broadcasts, blog posts, um, captions, whatever, make videos and put it out there, right, on my phone. And so by 9 a.m., I'm done with that. I'm on my way to the gym. I get a good hour and a half workout. Then I come here and I'm ready to do a podcast or serve my team. Um, and then tonight, back to working out in the gym with my family. Mm. It's, I work out twice a day. Mm-hmm. In the evenings just with my family, we work out in the gym and then we'll go on a hike. We get to connect, that's how me and my family connect. I believe there's something very powerful about working out together as a family, pushing my daughter, pushing my son, having my wife get pushed in, in the workouts. And like by the time we get home, uh, it's usually eight o'clock we have a light dinner. We'll watch an episode of something. Kids go to bed. Me and the wife go go in the hot tub. Uh, Ten o'clock. I'm in bed. Mm. Rinse and repeat. It's just like, you can set your clock to me. Yeah. Um, you, you know. and you saw like before even Joan announced like, "Hey, turn off your phones." My phone was off. Like, you know, not a single message. And it's it's just off because I need to focus here. If I see this thing constantly sending me notifications, right. then where's my attention really? Right. Yeah. And so that high level of discipline is what you need. And People go, well, when, when do you find fun? I schedule fun into my days. Like I literally will schedule going surfing on Thursday. Mm. And people go, but you don't know what the waves are gonna be on Thursday. That's okay. If the ocean's flat, I'm just gonna paddle. I'm gonna right. be the best fucking people paddle. People think you are
0: going to ske- You need to schedule the business serious stuff into your schedule, but it's like your yeah. vice versa. I schedule, I schedule my schedule date nights.
1: I schedule fun into my day. And so if I go to the beach and the waves are perfect, I'm gonna surf. If the waves are flat, I'm gonna paddle. If the mm. waves are really big, I'm gonna learn to not drown. Yeah. That's it. Because I don't have a life of mediocrity where I can just go, well, hey, let me just look out the window what the waves are, and it's a perfect wave and surf. Like, I've got big goals, big dreams. Mm. For that to happen, I must be disciplined.
2: What is your biggest goal? What is that end goal?
1: To raise two very amazing humans, Chloe and Andrew, who are going to leave a much bigger impact on this planet than I ever did. Love it. Love it. Well,
0: Thank this has so been awesome, man. Thank you so much. I think we've got a lot Thank done you. and talked about a lot of things. Your journey is incredible and what you've built is incredible. So uh, can't wait to see what comes next. And, appreciate it, guys. Uh, appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.